0: Well, good morning, church family. Good to see all of you. And I'm so glad I'm not alone here today between the time change and the Glendora wine walk last night. I'm surprised that everybody's not at home watching in their pajamas online or uh, um, catching it later this week. So I'm so glad to be here with you today, worshiping with you. You know, it's not uncommon for someone who benefits from another person's sacrifice to fail to truly appreciate the magnitude of that person's sacrifice. When I worked at Azusa Pacific, uh, some of the students who went there had parents who were paying for the full amount of their kids' college education. And one of the deans that I knew, uh, the dean of the School of Business at the time, Eileen Bejian, used to tell these students not to crash the Ferrari. And what she meant is that she would remind students that a four-year private college education with room, board, books, and other expenses is nearly as much as buying a Ferrari. And for some students, failing to appreciate the magnitude of the sacrifice their families often made in order to send them would crash the Ferrari by not going to class or, or not finishing their education. Sometimes people who benefit from another person's sacrifice don't appreciate the full magnitude of that sacrifice. But it's not just unique to college students. This is something all of us do. Consider the fact that nearly all of us here today can read the Bible in our own language. For English readers, like many of us here today, there are more than a hundred different English Bible translations available to us, and the average American household has four Bibles in it. But when we read the Bible in our own language, and for many of us it's English, most of us probably fail to appreciate the magnitude of the sacrifices that other people made for us to be able to do that. Consider, for example, the sacrifices of a guy named John Wycliffe. Wycliffe was the very first person to translate the Bible into English. He was a pastor and an Oxford professor in England over 600 years ago. And back then, both the government and the church leadership back then believed that it was morally wrong to translate the Bible into a common language like English. And so because of John's translation work, John was stripped of his ordination as a pastor, and he was removed from his post at Oxford. The church put him on trial and declared him to be a heretic. The government locked him up in a prison cell and sentenced him to be burned at the stake for translating the Bible into a common language. Before John could be executed, he died of a stroke, And so the government dug up his body and burned it at the stake anyway, just to make their point. Now, I'm guessing when we pick up a Bible in our own language to read it, we don't think much about the magnitude of sacrifices that people like John Wycliffe made for us to be able to do that. People who benefit from someone else's sacrifice often don't fully appreciate the magnitude of that sacrifice. Now, during this season of Lent, we're in a series called Welcome to the Story. And in this series, we're exploring how Israel's Exodus story in the Bible becomes our story when we trust in Jesus. And we started by looking at Israel's plight in Exodus chapter 1, and we saw that Israel's slavery in Egypt is a picture of humanity's plight, humanity's slavery to sin, evil, and death. Israel's plight in Egypt shines the light and reveals our plight as the human race. And then last Sunday, Pastor Kate looked at our deliverer from Exodus chapter 6, and we saw that God raising up Moses to deliver the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt points forward to God raising up Jesus, his son, to be our deliverer. Kate reminded us that this is a yes and kind of story, with God delivering the ancient Hebrews from their literal slavery through Moses, and God raising up Jesus to deliver people from both literal and spiritual slavery. And today we're going to look at our sacrifice from the 12th chapter of Exodus. See, after Moses experienced God's call as a deliverer, Moses went to the Egyptian king, the Pharaoh, and demanded that Israel be released from their enslavement in Egypt. And after the Pharaoh refused a number of different times, God sent plagues upon Egypt, a total of 10 plagues in all. You can read about the first nine of these plagues in Exodus chapters 7 through 10. And today we're going to look at how a sacrifice protected the people of Israel from the 10th and final plague and how this story becomes our story through our faith in Jesus. So Exodus chapter 12, if you're able, would you, would you stand for the reading of God's word From Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord for us today. The Lord, or in Hebrew, it's Yahweh, the name of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the doorframes of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. You can be seated. In verse 2 of this chapter, God gives the people of Israel a brand new calendar. Up until this point, Israel has used the Egyptian calendar, the calendar of their slave masters. And the Egyptian calendar was a solar calendar, which isn't surprising since the Egyptians worshiped the sun as one of their primary gods. Israel's new calendar is primarily a lunar calendar. And the center of this new calendar is the Passover, their annual Passover celebration. This chapter is all about the Passover. God reveals how the people of Israel are to prepare to leave their slavery in Egypt, as well as giving them instructions about how to remember this event every year afterwards. The Passover centers around a meal. Everything about this meal was rushed. The lamb was cooked by roasting without cleaning or taking out the internal organs. Uh, The quickest way to prepare a lamb was by roasting. The bread was unleavened because there wasn't enough time for yeast to cause the bread to rise. The people were to eat this meal quickly with their walking shoes on, wearing their outdoor coats and their walking sticks in hand, ready to leave. And the lamb was the central part of this meal. According to verse 5, the Passover lamb needed to be without defect. According to verse 7, the Passover lamb's blood was to be rubbed on the outside door frames of each house. One Bible scholar says that the blood on the door frames was a visible reminder that a life had been laid down within that house. And notice verse 13 of our reading says that this blood on the doorframe was a sign for Israel. In other words, it's not that God needed the blood on the doorframe so he could tell which household was Hebrew and which was Egyptian. The blood was a sign for them. Verse 11 says that this is the Lord's Passover, Yahweh's Passover. And the Hebrew word for Passover, it means a shielding, a protecting, a passing over. The the blood of the Passover lamb ensured that God's people would be shielded and protected from this 10th and final plague upon Egypt. And that final plague was the death of every firstborn, both animal and human, including the Pharaoh's own firstborn son. See, because the Egyptian people all shared in the collective guilt of enslaving Israel, every family in Egypt is impacted by this final plague. Verse 12 of our reading describes this plague as as Yahweh's judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. Many Bible scholars have pointed out that each plague of these ten plagues corresponds to something that the Egyptians worshipped as a god. In fact, if you're curious, I made a list of these ten plagues and how it corresponds to the Egyptian gods in the weekly Bible study guide that our pastors write every week. If you go to glenkirkchurch.org and click the banner that says, Welcome to the Story, you can download that weekly Bible study that has that list. Now, verse 12 is not implying that these Egyptian gods were real. It means that God is judging the people of Egypt for worshiping created things that were not truly God's. Through these plagues, God reveals that the created things that the Egyptians are worshiping, like the Nile River, like the sun, like the Pharaoh and his firstborn, are really not God's, but mere created things. The Passover is Israel's story. Israel's entire existence, their calendar, everything about them, exists in reference to this story. And through Jesus, this Passover story becomes your story and my story as well. When we trust in Jesus, we are grafted into the Passover story. Israel's sacrifice of a Passover lamb on the night before their liberation from slavery points to a sacrifice that will deliver us from our plight of sin, evil, and death. The New Testament makes this point again and again and again. Let me just give you a couple of examples. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when his cousin John the Baptist sees Jesus, according to John chapter 1, verse 29, John points to Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. At the very start of Jesus' ministry, he is associated with the Passover lamb from Exodus chapter 12. Before Jesus does any miracles, before he preaches his first sermon, before he suffers, before he dies, before he raises from the dead, he is identified as the Passover lamb. We see this in the Apostle Paul's writings as well. 1 Corinthians 5.7, Paul writes, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is a reference to Jesus' death on the cross. The killing of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12.6 points forward to Christ's sacrifice for us and for our sins on the cross. The lamb's blood that was placed on the door frames of each house in Exodus 12, 7, points to Christ's blood that was shed for forgiveness. We see this in the Apostle Peter's writings as well. In 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter writes this, For you know that you that it was not with Perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Notice the word redeemed in verse 18. In the New Testament, the word redeem nearly always is shorthand for the entire Passover story, the Exodus story. And Peter describes Jesus here as a lamb without blemish, a clear reference back to Exodus 12:5, where the Passover lamb must be without defect. And finally, we see this in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. In fact, Revelation describes Jesus as a lamb 29 different times, the most of any book of the New Testament. For example, in Revelation 5, 12, it says, in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Jesus is the worthy Passover lamb. Who was slain? Because of what Jesus achieved through his death, he is worthy of all honor, praise, worship, wealth, and glory. I could keep going, but these are just a handful of examples about how the New Testament makes the Passover story our story. Welcome to the story. So, what does this all mean? Let me suggest three different implications of this quickly. First, as our Passover lamb, Jesus was without sin. Jesus alone was without sin. He was a lamb without defect or blemish. His life was a perfect life. His sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. He laid down his life in our place. His innocence in exchange for our guilt. His righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. You see, the Egyptian gods that the Egyptians worship were all created things. Gods that were blemished, imperfect. What the Bible calls idols or false gods. Back in the fall, we did a series called Glenkirk on Mission, and we looked at the four parts of our mission statement that we see every time we come in here of worship, invite, become, and love. And when we talked about worship, we talked about the fact that Glenkirk is a worshiping community, and I suggested back in September that the biggest temptation that churches face when it comes to worship is to make worship about themselves, instead of about God. To put ourselves in the spotlight, our pastors or our leaders, our ministries, our theology, our story, our building, to make Glenkirk the star of the story. And our world is filled with churches and church leaders who do this. Worship in some churches feels like an infomercial about that church's ministries or a a platform for the personality of their pastors. But the problem with this is that our pastors and our leaders and our ministries are all flawed, created things. Just as imperfect as the created things that the Egyptians worshipped. Jesus alone is the unblemished one, the Passover lamb without defect, who was slain for our sins. And in worship, we belong on the sidelines, so he can be at the center. He is the star of our story, not us. And by keeping Jesus at the center of our worship, instead of ourselves, we continually remind ourselves of the magnitude of his sacrifice. Jesus alone is without sin. Secondly, as our Passover lamb, Jesus paid the price for our redemption. He paid the price for our redemption. In Exodus, God redeemed Israel from their slavery by paying the price for their freedom. The death of a lamb in each household represented the price that was paid. And the death of Jesus represents the price that's paid for our redemption. Because redemption always costs something. That's what the word redeem means. To buy someone back from slavery by paying the price for their freedom. Israel was unable to pay the price for their freedom. We are unable to pay the price for our own redemption. And so God pays the price for us. How easy it is for us to neglect the magnitude of that price. I think this is one reason why Jesus gave us communion to continually renew and to remind each other of the magnitude of the price of his sacrifice. Just as Passover was Israel's sacrament to signify their redemption from their slavery in Egypt, the Lord's Supper communion is our sacrament to signify our redemption from our slavery to sin, evil, and death. Jesus paid the price for our redemption. And third and finally, as our Passover lamb, Jesus shields us from judgment. He shields us from judgment. God brought judgment on the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River as a god, so the first plague, the water of the Nile, turned to blood. The Egyptians worshipped the sun, so in the ninth plague, God sent three days of darkness. The Egyptians worshipped the Pharaoh and his firstborn son as God, so in the tenth plague, every firstborn died. But Israel was shielded from God's judgment because of the blood of Of the Lamb. See, here's the thing about false gods. Over time, everyone becomes like what they worship. The objects of our devotion as people shape and mold us into particular kinds of people. The Egyptian people's cruelty of that generation, their enslavement of the Hebrew people, was a consequence of what they worshiped. Their worship of false gods turned them into the kinds of people who could justify oppression, engage in cruelty, and use violence to enslave people. Now, according to the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, chapter one, the whole human race is enslaved to sin because. Humanity as a whole has exchanged the worship of the one true God for the worship of created things. Tim Keller, a Reformed pastor, says that a false god or an idol is anything, any created thing, that's more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God does. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give you. And so throughout human history, people have worshipped at the altar of sex and the altar of politics and the altar of race and the altar of money and greed and power and fame and violence. We've worshipped good things like our marriages and our families, our churches and our countries. As John Calvin famously said, the human heart is an idol making Factory. And when one idol disappoints us, we find another, and then another, and then another. And worshiping false gods shapes us into particular kinds of people because we become like what we worship. Again, back in Romans chapter 1. God says that worshiping created things brings God's judgment, and God's judgment doesn't come in storms or earthquakes. It comes in God giving people over to their own desires. We become ensnared and enslaved to the very created things that we worship. But through Jesus, our Passover lamb, we are shielded from judgment set free from slavery to sin, evil, and death. But you know, even after we trust in Jesus, false gods can still be alluring to us. After God delivered Israel from their slavery in Egypt, it would take generations for the people of Israel to disentangle their hearts and their imaginations from the gods of Egypt. Numerous times they wanted to go back. Numerous times they romanticized how great things were when they were slaves in Egypt. The Bible reveals that it's easier to take Israel out of Egypt than it was to take Egypt out of the hearts of the people of Israel. And idolatry creeps in very subtly in our lives. I was thinking about that this week when I was reminding of a teaching that takes place in some churches that says that husbands function as a kind of savior to their wives. This teaching is based on what I believe is a misinterpretation of Ephesians chapter five. And this teaching very subtly sets husbands up as false gods in their marriage. Creates an impossible standard for husbands to live up to because no matter how godly a husband might be, he's still an imperfect, flawed, sinful human being. Husbands cannot save their wives. Only Jesus, the unblemished Passover lamb, is able to save. And this teaching also sets up impossible expectations for wives because it encourages them to expect things from their husbands that only Jesus can give them. And that's the very definition of idolatry. Seeking from a created thing, like a husband or a wife or another person, something that only God can give us. Just one little example of how easily Idolatry can creep into our lives as Christians. Only Jesus, our Passover lamb, can shield us and protect us from worshiping false gods. So through Jesus, the Passover story becomes our story. Jesus, our Passover lamb, delivers us from sin, evil, and death. He alone is the spotless one who deserves all of our honor and glory. So to quote that APU Dean, let's not crash the Ferrari. Let's never take for granted the value and magnitude of the sacrifice our Passover lamb paid for our redemption from slavery. Let's be a community and be people who keep Jesus at the center of all we do, all we say, and all we aspire to become. Let's resist the temptation to make it about ourselves, our pastors, or our ministries, or our reputation. Because he alone is the worthy one, the spotless lamb. This is our story. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus, the Lamb of God, who willingly shed his blood that is more precious than perishable things like gold or silver as the price for our redemption. Lord, may we be a congregation and may we be people, the kinds of people who keep you at the very center of all we do, who willingly step into the sidelines so you can receive the glory. Lord, protect us from the subtle temptations and allure of false gods. May we worship you and you alone because you are the only worthy one. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.